Turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 12. 2 Corinthians 12, as we keep studying through this book, we'll look at the first 10 verses today. We're kind of in the middle of a big section here. And we're in the middle of an interesting thing. We're in the middle of the Apostle Paul making a fool of himself. That's not my assessment. I would never be so disrespectful. That's his assessment. For here he finds himself doing the very thing he disdains in his opponents. He's boasting. Not because he thinks it's worthwhile. He doesn't believe in it at all. But he's boasting in order to make a point. He's using his opponent's approach in order to refute his opponent's position. Now that's where he was last week, that's what's going on, and that's what's going on again this week with a little bit different emphasis. Let me pick up and let's read it. Uh, verse, uh, 2 Corinthians 12, verse 1. I must go on boasting. Although there's nothing to be gained, I will go on to visions and revelations from the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Whether it was in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man, whether in the body or apart from the body, I do not know, but God knows, was caught up to paradise. He heard inexpressible things, things that man is not permitted to tell. I will boast about a man like that, but I will not boast about myself except about my weaknesses. Even if I should choose to boast, I would not be a fool because I would be speaking the truth, but I refrain so no one will think more of me than is warranted by what I do or say. To keep me from becoming conceited because of these surpassingly great revelations, there was given me a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. This is a difficult text to quite know how to unpack, but let me do the best I can. And I've boiled it down to two truths that I'm certain it teaches us. And there are lots of other things here we could talk about, but let's get these two great central truths today. The first is this, that weakness plagues God's servants. Weakness plagues God's servants. No one likes the idea of being a weakling. We make jokes about weaklings. When we're little kids, we beat up on weaklings. Or if we're weakling, we get beat up by those who don't like weaklings. But all of us know we have weaknesses. That's probably why the joke stings so badly. In fact, if we are Christians, it is certainly possible that we are drawn to the faith in hopes that Jesus is going to take away those weaknesses. But this morning I have to tell you the truth. God often does not remove our weaknesses. 
Oh, many think differently. Many think that when God saves me, he's going to take away all my trouble. Or that if I grow enough in the faith, if I become really spiritual, my weaknesses will all disappear. But the truth is, weakness persistently plagues God's people. Now this is not new truth for the folks at Corinth. Right at the beginning of Paul's correspondence with this church, back in the first chapter of his first letter, he makes a point of the fact that weakness was characteristic of them, of this church, this little congregation of God's people. There in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 we read, Brothers, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many of you were influential. Not many of you were of noble birth. God chose the foolish things of the world. He chose the weak things of the world. He chose the lowly things of the world and the despised things and the things that are not, are nothing in other words, to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. Weakness is a common characteristic of God's people. But now some people have come to Corinth, some leaders, some teachers have come to Corinth with quite another model of the Christian faith. But these people don't talk about weakness, they speak of power and authority. They, see, they, they are themselves impressed and they seek to impress others with their polished image. They've got it together. They prize great oratory sermons who leave, which leave people spellbound and powerfully impressed and moved. Weak is just not a label that these leaders would be willing to bear. They believed in power and prestige and dominion and influence in their ministry. And so Paul has set out to refute their teaching, even if he has to make a fool of himself. Last week we heard him boasting in his weakness because it made him like Christ. And that's what he's doing again in our text today. But the issue has changed from chapter 11 to chapter 12. Now Paul is addressing their claim to have many visions and to have received revelations from the Lord. Wow, that fits their image. That makes, makes you look spiritual, doesn't it? I saw this great vision of God. God spoke to me. Wow. I guess he's a cut above normal mundane ministers. God appears to him. Paul says, I'm not deficient in this matter. If we want to talk about visions and revelations, I can talk about that. Though he's very reluctant to begin to share his experience. In fact, he's so reluctant that when he starts talking about it, he won't even use the first person. He won't even say, I. He says, I knew a man. We later find out it's Paul he's talking about. He just can't bring himself to say himself. Actually, Paul had many visions and revelations from the Lord. He was an apostle. But here he describes one particular experience which had occurred 14 years earlier. Paul tells us very little about this, only that he was caught up into paradise, which he calls the third heaven. That apparently the, the three heavens would be the first is like the atmosphere, the clouds and the rain, and all the second is the stars and the moon and the sun. And uh, the third heaven would be like God's presence, a paradise where God exists. He goes on to say, I don't know if this was a bodily experience or if this was an out-of-body experience. Only God knows that. But there I heard things that are beyond human expression. As he says in another place, things that eyes have not seen and ears have not heard and that have never entered the heart of man. 
things I can't even talk about, things I can't even put into words. Verse 6, Paul says, if I should choose to boast about that, I would not be a fool. That happened. In other words, Paul could meet these false teachers on their own terms, but Paul only desires to boast in weakness. Indeed, he only tells us about that experience in order to explain how he came to have his greatest weakness, the thorn in his flesh, which he received as a result of that fantastic vision. Again, Paul wants us to understand that even in the greatest moments, Weakness, weakness plagues God's servants. So what weaknesses did Paul experience? Well, he's told us about some of them uh, previously. He talked about his sense of insufficiency for all he faced. In chapter 4, he spoke of the pressures and the perplexity that he faced. Back in chapter 11, he spoke of his vulnerability to natural forces and to hostile men and the pressures of ministry and the inability to change other people's wrong choices and all of those kinds of weaknesses. Obviously, weakness plagued Paul. But now down in verse 10, Paul gives a, a bit more specific list of weaknesses. Four things he mentions, insults, hardships, persecutions, and difficulties. We know something about insults. People still insult believers as if they're stupid or ignorant. Though in Paul's case, this word was also used for the insult of being whipped and imprisoned in Philippi. Now that'll make you face to face uh, with your weakness. And we, we still know uh, something about hardships. These are adverse circumstances which force themselves upon you. This is when you feel trapped by tragedy or pain. These are situations where you, you, which you thought you would never face, and all of a sudden, here you are. I thought this happened to other people, and here I am caught in this. Situations that arise out of nowhere and demonstrate that uh, how weak you really are, that you can't do anything about it. And then he talks about persecutions. For Paul, this meant terrible suffering at the hands of the enemies of Christ. For us, it probably means suffering more subtle prejudice or injustice because of our faith. But in every case, it points out our weakness. For there's not a thing you can do about that. You can't control that. If it comes at you, it comes at you. There's not a thing you can do. And then fourthly, he mentioned difficulties. This is a really graphic word. This, speaks, this is a word that speaks of pressure. Pressures. Pressures which crush us. Pressures of tight places that restrict us. Pressures of circumstances that back us into a corner with nowhere to, no way to escape. In every case, these pressures take away our freedom and cause us to see how vulnerable and weak we are. So we don't have choices. We, we can't deal with it. We're victimized by various pressures. For you see, weakness persistently plagues God's people. That's what he's saying here. Oh, but for Paul, the greatest weakness that he had was what he called his thorn in the flesh. And that's really what he describes here. The Greek word translated thorn here is a word as collapse, which can mean either a, a stake on which you're impaled or a stake that pins you to the ground, or it could mean a, a splinter in your hand. All of those would be difficult to live with. This thorn, he says, was given him 
as a direct result of this fantastic vision that he saw. In other words, Paul's greatest exaltation resulted in his greatest weakness. And he says, this was this thorn in my flesh is nothing less than a messenger of Satan sent to torment me. Reminds us of Job in the Old Testament, where Satan, using one thing after another, after another, after another, tormented Job. That's how Paul describes this greatest of his weaknesses. Well, there's been no end of speculation of what this thorn in the flesh was. Some have thought it was some besetting temptation. Martin Luther seemed to think that. Some suspect he referred to adversaries who constantly dogged him wherever he went. Here they were again, uh, pushing on him and uh, belittling him and fighting against him. Most people think it was some sort of physical or psychological malady, though the suggestions of what it was are, are, are endless. Some of the suggestions, migraine headaches, depression, speech impediments, bad eyesight, gout, deafness, or recurring malarial fever, and that's not even the beginning of the list. All kinds of speculation about what Paul's thorn in the flesh was. The truth is we just don't know. But as Paul Barnett points out, the thorn kept Paul from imagining himself as a spiritual superman and revealed to him the reality of his human mortality and weakness despite these extraordinary revelations that he had seen. As Paul knew so well, weakness plagued him. For it always plagues God's servants. Folks, it's still true. You could dress up Christianity and market it as a solution to all your troubles, but if you'll be honest, you know. Every true believer knows from experience that our weaknesses don't just go away. The late Dr. Philip Hughes wrote, Is there a single servant of Christ who cannot point to some thorn in the flesh, visible or private, physical or psychological, from which he has prayed to be released, but which has been given him by God to humble him and therefore make him fruitful for his service? And is this not the case to a special degree with those who have been called to be ministers? of the gospel. Weakness still persistently plagues God's servants. Oh, but there's a second truth here which needs to be heard in conjunction with the first and that's this. That God fashions our weaknesses for good. God fashions, shapes our weaknesses for good. We've all known weaknesses and we all ask the same question in the face of our weakness. Why? Why, Lord? What purpose could possibly be served by my powerlessness in this situation? John Piper brings the question down to where we live. Why insults, hardships, persecutions, calamities, and troubles? Why can't I find a job? 
Why am I trapped in this awful marriage? Why does my dad have cancer? Why can't I have children? Why do I have no friends? Why is nothing working in my life? Why, 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 why? And we never quite have the answer to that. But I think that here God throws just a little ray of light into that question. For here we see that God shapes our weaknesses for good. He uses weakness to to do his will. John Piper gives us three purposes which are served in our weakness, and I'd like to just use his outline kind of to hang my thoughts on here. First of all, he says we know Satan's purpose in our weakness. Satan's purpose is to torment us, to destroy us. That's what Satan's up to. Paul says the thorn in the flesh was a messenger of Satan, and Satan was out to kill him, out to destroy him, out to take him out of the ministry. But we also know that we're to resist Satan. And so we pray. We pray persistently. We pray earnestly. We pray fervently. The greater the weakness, the greater we pray. God doesn't delight in our suffering. Pain is not better than comfort in God's eyes. It is Satan who seeks to destroy us. So we ask God to deliver us and preserve us. Psalm 86 that we sang, that's what it's about. A prayer that the Lord would preserve us, that the Lord would deliver us. That's what Paul did. Three times he prayed that the Lord would take his weakness away. Paul Barnett makes quite a point of this. In this present world, there are injustice and inequality. And frequently we are helpless to remedy the evil effects of those in our lives. In this present existence, we suffer from disorders within our personalities. In our present lives, we suffer from ill health and disease. What is the Christian to do in these circumstances of pain and suffering? He's to pray that the Lord will deliver him as Paul prayed. And it may be that God will deliver the person as he is continuously doing. In another place, the same apostle, after warning that we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against that wily, scheming devil, the evil one, calls us to not just put on spiritual armor, but to pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. Be alert and always keep on praying. So you see, God uses this weakness to force us to the end of ourselves that we'll pray. That's what Paul did. Secondly, here we see that God knows, we, we know God's purpose is to humble us. Satan's purpose is to destroy us. But God's purpose is to humble us as we feel the weight of our weakness. Now here's a great mystery, folks. Who brought this weakness on Paul? Who, who gave Paul the thorn in his flesh? Well, he says Satan did. He was a minister of Satan. But folks, Satan does not want us to learn humility. Satan wants to fill us with pride. So while Satan is, is, is trying to destroy Paul and filling him, try to fill him with pride, God sovereignly uses the works of the evil one to work humility, not pride, in Paul. Satan, as we saw in the case, as we see in the case of Job, Satan can only do what God allows him to do. Satan has no sovereignty over us, only God is sovereign. Listen, as one author comments on God's mysterious ways, from one point of view, God abhors and hates these things and will one day overthrow them. And yet, is it not through the awareness of our sins that the grace of God holds us near Christ for forgiveness? And is it not also in the pain of suffering that the same grace pins us to Christ? 
Folks, here we see how important humility and brokenness are to the Lord. They are more important to him than our comfort. They are more important to him than our success. They are more important to him than our great mountaintop spiritual experience, visions, and revelations. God's purpose is that we be humble and broken before him. Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those, or blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Why? Because those things drive us to the end of ourselves. Those things cause us to see how utterly weak and unable we are to handle things. They humble us. They break us. And thus, they make us useful in God's hands. God fashions our weakness. He even twists and turns and molds Satan's work for his good purposes to humble us and make us broken before him. And then finally, the great thrust of this passage, God's purpose in our weakness is to demonstrate the grace and power of his son. That's the point of verse nine. My grace sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. It is precisely our inability our weakness, the fact that we are what Paul earlier called just clay pots, having treasure inside. It is precisely that weakness that makes us a showcase for the grace and the power of God. Say you want a beautiful gold trophy. And you say, wow, this thing is impressive and I want to display it. How would you display it? Against what backdrop? Would you put gold foil all behind it and set the gold trophy in front? No, you wouldn't. That would detract from it. You'd put some flat black cloth, some void, some nothingness behind it so that everyone could see the beauty and the strength and all that this trophy represented. And in the same way, if God wants to show his mighty power and grace in the gospel, He doesn't pick the strongest, most capable, coolest people. He picks the weakest, most helpless people. And if God wants to show his power and his strength in your life, how's he going to show it? Against the backdrop of your absolute, utter weakness. Now there's a subtle error here that we have to be careful about. This text does not say that by faith we tap in to Christ's power, and thus our weakness dissipates, and we become participants of the divine power. That's some kind of New Age gobbledygook. That's not what the Bible teaches. This text says that it is precisely in our weakness, in our total inability, that we trust and obey. And thus Christ demonstrates his power by doing what we could not do, and everybody knows it. This is not about getting Christ's power to get rid of our weakness. This is about Christ showing himself powerful right in the middle of our weakness. Demonstrating that his grace is sufficient when ours obviously is not. 
that his power is sufficient when ours obviously is non-existent. Folks, this is how we're saved. And this is how we live. We're saved by coming to an absolute utter end of ourselves. Coming to see our total inability to please God. And in our desperation, we cast ourselves on Jesus. For he has done for us what we could never do in a million years. On the cross, he paid the debt that we could never pay. He rose from the dead to give us life that we could never earn. And so he saves those who are utterly unworthy, who are wicked. And he declares them righteous. It's all of God. But this is also the way we live out this Christian life. God in his mercy causes us to see our utter insufficiency, our frailty, our weakness. But knowing his will, we set out in faith to start doing it, even in the face of our weakness, even though we know we can't, trusting him as we go. And Christ Jesus proves himself strong. He works through us, the weakest of vessels, in ways we cannot imagine. We see examples of it throughout the scripture. Gideon takes 300 men against the Midianites, 20,000 armed Midianites, and get in with his 300 men, and they have clay jars with torches inside. And God defeats the Midianites through Gideon's little band. God wants to speak to the prophet. The prophet's not listening. God speaks through Balaam's donkey. I take great comfort in that. God can preach through Balaam's donkey. God comes into the world in the person of Jesus and selects apostles. Who does he select? Great scholars, the great religious leaders? No. A fisherman, a couple of fishermen, a tax collector, a bunch of nobodies. And turns the world upside down as these utterly weak men go out with the gospel. God fashions our weakness to bring glory to himself. What a precious promise we have here. My grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in your weakness. It's from this great promise that Annie Johnson Flint gave us that beautiful hymn, one of my favorites. He giveth more grace when the burdens grow greater. He sendeth more strength when our labors increase. To added affliction, he adds his mercy. To multiplied trials, his multiplied peace. When we've exhausted our store of endurance, when our strength has failed, ere the day is half done, when we reach the end of our hoarded resources, our Father's full giving is only begun. His love has no limit. His grace has no measure. His power has no boundary known to men. For out of his infinite, unlimited riches in Jesus, he gives, and he gives, and he gives again. God fashions our weakness to glorify his Son. I remember the day where I was, what I was doing, walking across a parking lot in Birmingham, Alabama, the day that this truth first dawned on me. The realization 
that I'm never going to outgrow these weaknesses. The realization that there is no spiritual plateau of success which I'm, upon which I will soon rest. There isn't one. The realization that for the rest of my life, weakness will plague me. That was not a sad day, though. That was a day of great beginnings. For once I got over the idea that God was going to take away all my weakness, then I could stop acting like I didn't have any. Or I could stop being mad at God for not doing it. Instead, I was free to look my trouble right in the face and admit it really is what it is. I'm not sufficient to do God's work. And then see God work through me things beyond my comprehension. So if these great truths haven't dawned on you, may this be the day. Weakness persistently plagues God's people. Make no mistake. But God shapes that weakness for your good. That his glorious grace and power might be displayed in you. Amen. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for this great truth, which we admit we, we're too weak to even put into words properly. And yet, Lord, thank you that you've told us and shown us and that you keep showing us by impressing upon us our weakness and then doing your will anyway in spite of us and through us, even though we can't. Yet we know, Father, that when you bring us to an end of ourselves, it's always a time of great temptation, for we might get angry and we might throw away the faith, begin to doubt and become cynical, rather than to cast ourselves upon you and realize we really are weaker than we ever dreamed. And we have nothing but you. Oh, Lord, give us grace to trust you. And to see your power work through us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.